Let's turn in our Bibles once again to the 16th chapter of Acts. We've spent the last couple of weeks perusing these verses, and we come to them again this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 13. So Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we, that is Luke, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and perhaps others, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Father, even in reading these words again, I'm reminded of the place of prayer uh, in the life of the believer, how much we need you, how much I need you if these words are going to be helpful to your people now. So please uh, come and help us. Speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have in those few verses that I just read to you is really a study in contrasts. A study in contrasts. There are two women, yes, both of whom changed at the name of Jesus Christ, yes. But the way that it happened for these two different women and the way that they came into uh, their situation of needing the Lord is quite diverse, I think you'll agree. Think it out just for a moment. First, you have Lydia. Lydia is evidently the kind of woman who has her life together. She is a a merchant. She seems to own her own small business, uh, dealing with purple fabrics particularly. Uh, She is fairly mobile. She wasn't from Philippi. She was from Thyatira, and so evidently she had had the means and the wherewithal to move to a new place and to set up shop in a new place. Uh, She had her life relatively together. She had her own home into which she could invite the Apostle Paul and his uh, compatriots. Things were going quite well for her. And then on the other hand, um, at the other end of the social strata, we have a woman, a girl, who was not mobile, who did not have it all together, who was not working in her own business, but was working for someone else's profit. She was a slave. 
She had none of the advantages that Lydia evidently had. She had none of the wherewithal that Lydia had. Uh, Her life was completely controlled by others and, as we'll see, not only by other human beings, but by other forces as well. And so when you think about the social spheres from which these two women came, they couldn't be more diverse, could they? The woman who has it all together and is to be looked to as an example of uh, a good citizen, an upstanding person, and then at the other end, a slave girl. And not only were their social spheres very different, but also their spiritual backgrounds as well. Lydia wasn't yet a believer in Jesus, as we saw last week, but she was a worshiper of God. She was evidently a Gentile who had come in contact with the Jewish religion and was trying to learn about God, trying to pray, trying to understand how to be forgiven of sins, and so on. She was a religious person, though she didn't yet know Jesus at the beginning of this chapter. She was the kind of person who would come to the local ladies' Sabbath morning prayer meeting. Again, someone who sort of seemed to have things together. But then spiritually, again, at the other end of the spectrum, we have this slave girl. Not only is she controlled by other human beings, but we're told that she's controlled by evil spirits as well. She had a spirit of divination, a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. And so she was engaged at these men's behest in fortune telling. And mind you, this is, this is not the Psychic Friends Network. This is not Dion Warwick trying to make a buck. This is the real deal. This is a woman who really was in contact with evil spirits, with the spirit world, such that she really could evidently foretell the future. Those things are real. And this girl was involved in them head over heels. A woman who has it all together socially and seems to have all of her ducks coming into line religiously. And then a girl who lives at the bottom of the food chain, at the bottom of the totem pole, controlled by other people, controlled by evil spirits, and herself involved in witchcraft. To study in contrast. And yet both of these women, so different from one another, needed Christ. Both of them needed Christ. The religious and well-heeled woman needed Christ. And the girl that lived and worked in the dark alleys needed Christ. It's just what Paul says in the first two chapters of Romans. You know, in Romans 1, which is more famous to us, he describes the sort of people who do all the obvious things that make it clear that they don't know God and that they are abiding under the wrath of God. People who worship idols, people who engage in gross sexual sin, people who are murderers, people who are untrustworthy, people who are greedy, and so on. All the obvious sinners he talks about in chapter 1. People like this slave girl. But then in chapter 2, he goes on and he turns his attention to the religious folks. To the folks who think they probably have it together and at least outwardly compared to the others actually do have it together a little bit. And he says to them, you know, you need Jesus just like the people in chapter one. It's quite amazing. He preaches to the Lydia's and he preaches to the slave girls in Romans chapter one and two chapters one and two. And he says, both of you need Christ for chapter three. All have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. All, Lydia, the slave girl, and everyone in between. And that's a good reminder. These two women are a good reminder this morning that it doesn't really matter what side of the tracks you come from. It doesn't really matter if you grew up at the prayer meeting or if you grew up going to the seance. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God and all of us need Christ. And not only do we all need Christ, but this chapter reminds us that all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds are welcome to Christ. His liberating power came into the lives of both of these women. Christ was powerful enough to meet both of their needs. Now, we're not sure, we're not told exactly if this slave girl came all the way through to full faith in Christ. But at the very least, she was set free from her demonic oppression through the name of Christ. Jesus cared for her, and it's quite possible that it wasn't just that the demons went out, but that the Holy Spirit came in. Though she had done so much dishonor to the name of the Lord, though she had broken so many of his commands, though she had given herself to the devil for so long, and others had given her to him as well, Christ cared for her, and she was welcome to him. Just like the woman who seemed to be just a step away from the kingdom all along. All kinds of people, on both sides of the track, at both ends of the religious, both ends of the social spectrum, are loved by Jesus and welcomed by Jesus. And notice that Paul, the servant of Jesus, is an equal opportunity evangelist. He does not target a particular audience. He does not limit himself to the people like Lydia who seem more likely to believe, nor does he limit himself to the people like the slave girl who seem more likely to really need Jesus. No, Paul speaks of Christ, speaks for Christ to all sorts of people. He doesn't just go to people like himself. He doesn't just go to a group that he thinks will be easier or to a group that he thinks will be more difficult. He just preaches the gospel scattershot because all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And all need Christ. And all who will repent and believe are welcome to him. And that's how we must be. That's how we must be. We must just scatter the seed of the gospel as broadly as we can. We preach the gospel to the woman with her tarot cards. And we preach the gospel to the woman who sits with her well-to-do friends playing bridge. We preach the gospel to the philanthropist. And we preach the gospel to the person who's been hooked on drugs. We preach the gospel to the good, quote unquote, and to the bad. Because there really is no good and no bad. All have sinned. And we preach the gospel to everyone in between. This is a good reminder, this study in contrast, that really, no matter the contrast, all need Christ. And then notice another contrast between these women. Not only in the direction from which they came to Christ, but there is also a great contrast in the drama with which they came to Christ. The drama of it all. Lydia, you remember from last week and from the verses we just read, came to Christ quite quietly. It was evidently a peaceful morning there by the riverside with the 
birds chirping and the the water trickling by and all of these things that you can imagine. And it's a prayer meeting and it's a calm time. And Paul evidently just gave a straightforward, clear gospel message. And we read there in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. No commotion, no drama, no excitement, no tears, no shouts. And that's the way some people come to Christ, we said last week. Some people come to Christ without the agony, without the dramatic background, without uh, this aha moment. It's just that the aha moment happens quietly, tenderly, gently in their souls. And if that's how someone comes to Christ, if that's how you came to Christ, that doesn't make your conversion a second-class conversion. It doesn't make you a second-class Christian. It doesn't give you a second-class testimony. It just means that Christ came to you quietly. And it's good that He came. But some people, as we see here, are brought from darkness into light much more dramatically, with noise, with commotion, with drama. It's like childbirth. Now, all childbirth is more difficult than we men can imagine, but some children come relatively quickly and simply, don't they? A few uh, pushes, and they're there. Other children come into the world with great drama and writhing and commotion and effort, don't they? Sometimes in the very same family. And it's like that with the children to whom the Lord gives birth. Some of them come relatively easily, gently compared to others, while the others come with great noise. And we see that latter in this slave girl. She was noisy before she came to Christ, wasn't she? Verse 17. Following Paul through the streets and shouting out uh, that he had come from the Most High God and so on. We'll talk about why it is that that annoyed him in a moment. But for now, just notice she was noisy before she ever became a Christian. And then Paul, instead of preaching to her a simple, straightforward gospel sermon, as seems to have probably been the case with Lydia, here we hear him giving a loud, direct, even annoyed command in verse 18. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Much more dramatic than Lydia. And then afterwards, we're going to see in verses 19 and following that the change that happened in her life created great noise in the city as well. So there was commotion with this girl before she came to Christ. There was commotion as Christ set her free from this demonic power. And there was commotion in the city after she came to Christ. So different from what we read with Lydia. And it's the same today, isn't it? Some people come to Christ slowly, quietly, inwardly. Sometimes it happens so gently that they're not even sure exactly when the, they cross the line from darkness into light. They know that they have, but they can't pinpoint for you the moment exactly that it happened. Sometimes coming to Christ for some people is like sitting in your living room at dawn and watching the daylight increase in the room and the room go from black to dark gray to light gray to full light 
so slowly, almost imperceptibly, that you're not exactly sure when it changed from night to day. You don't know exactly when it became morning. You just know that it became morning. And that's the way some people come to Christ. They're not exactly sure when, they just know that it happened. And we shouldn't be tangled up in knots if we don't know when and we can't pinpoint a certain date. We shouldn't feel second class if we came to Christ that gently and quietly. But as we see in verses 16, 17, and 18, sometimes the step from darkness to light is obvious. And that's okay too. We who've come to Christ quietly shouldn't look with suspicion or disdain on people who came to Christ noisily, perhaps in an uncouth way, we would say. No, no, we don't look with disdain. We don't despise children who come into the world in a difficult fashion, do we? We're glad that they came. We're glad that they're alive. We're glad that they're here. No matter how difficult their coming was, no matter how noisy it was, we're glad that they came. People come to Christ in all sorts of different ways. That's what I'm trying to say here. Recently, I've been reading a biography of a man called William Grimshaw, written by uh, a lady called Faith Cook. William Grimshaw was a pastor, uh, an evangelist in the 1700s during the time of um, what we call now the Great Awakening. Uh, And it's been said by uh, J.C. Ryle that Uh, Next to George Whitfield and John Wesley, who are famous, William Grimshaw was the greatest preacher of that era. Saw numbers and numbers of people come to Christ. And he spoke from experience about how people come to Christ in so many different ways. He pointed out, and we need to point this out, there's only one way to God and one way to heaven, right? Namely, through Jesus Christ. But, quote, Grimshaw says... There are a hundred ways into Christ. There are not two in five hundred of God's children who are brought to Christ every way alike. There are many ways to Christ. Only one way to God, and that's through Christ. But people come from many different backgrounds and directions, and God uses many different providences to bring people to Christ so that really no two Christians come exactly in the same way. And we couldn't see that in more stark detail than by reading Acts 16. Your story is unique too, just like Lydia's story and the slave girl's story. And the uniqueness of your story, the uniqueness of how you met Jesus is not a reason for you not to share it because it's so different or obscure or it's too quiet or it's too loud. It's actually a reason for you to share your story. The Holy Spirit gets glory when we hear all the many different ways that he brings people to Jesus. Loudly, quietly, and every way in between. And... As we said, verses 14 and 15 and then verses 16 and 8 through 18 are very different stories, a study of contrast, and that's by design. But now I want you to see that in the midst of these contrasts, which are many and obvious, there are some constants as well. We've studied the contrast, now let's study the constants Two of them in particular that are exactly the same with both of these women. The first constant 
in both of these stories is the place of prayer. The place of prayer. Remember, verse 13, it was in the place of prayer that Paul and Silas and Timothy met Lydia in the first place. Now, they had probably gone to the place of prayer because they knew there would be people there gathered to whom they could speak about Jesus, yes. But they also went to the place of prayer, surely, not just to speak to other people, but to speak to God. Surely they went to the place of prayer to pray. Their thinking probably was along these lines. We've arrived in this great city, this leading city in Macedonia. We have been given this vision that we should come here and proclaim the gospel to them. But if we're going to proclaim the gospel to them, if we're going to preach Christ in this city, if we're going to see people come to Christ, we need God to help us. We need God to open people's hearts. We can't do that. We can preach. We can come. We can obey the vision. But God must open the hearts. And if we need God, then we need to pray. Surely that's the way Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and the others thought. And so it's no accident, it seems to me, that the first conversion in the city of Philippi happened at a prayer meeting. And we notice also that that wasn't the only time they went to the prayer meeting that day that they met Lydia. They met Lydia, they preached the gospel to her, she was baptized, she invited them to stay in their home. And then in verse 16, we're given the impression that even after that, they continued going to the place of prayer. And look what happens. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us. They met Lydia at the place of prayer, and then they met this second convert on their way to the place of prayer. Now, Acts 16 is an incredible chapter. We see some remarkable turnabouts in people's lives in this chapter, and we're not done yet. We see the kind of turnarounds happening here that any church, any pastor, any Christian would love to see God do in their own city. Wouldn't we love to see these kinds of things happening in Cincinnati? If we would, notice how clearly these things happening were tied to the place of prayer. The place of prayer. We cannot persuade people into the kingdom on our own. First of all, frankly, and this is not just true of our church, but of Christians in general, we're a motley crew, aren't we? We are all coming out of weird, crazy backgrounds ourselves. We are all still struggling with all sorts of sins and issues ourselves. Most of us have stammering tongues. Most of us are fearful when it comes to sharing the gospel. And to the natural man, if we were to say, come along with us and we'll do you good, as in the Old Testament, they might look at us and say, what do you guys really have to offer compared with so many other things and places and people in the world? We're not just the beacon of what everybody in the culture wants to be like, are we? We wish we were, but ultimately we're not, because of both because of who we are and because of the way the world thinks. And more than that, even if we were the hippest thing going, people might come because they liked us instead of God. They might come for the coolness of it all instead of for Jesus. 
So whether we're the coolest people or whether we're what we are, we can't ultimately bring people to God, can we? So we have an impossible task before us, winning men and women to a God that they've spent their life avoiding or that they've spent their life reimagining in their own image, inviting them to come along with us when everything that they see in the culture around them and everything that they feel in their lost heart says, I don't want to be with you or like you. And we desperately need the Lord's help, don't we? We can't do this task on our own. How much we need to find ourselves then with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke in the place of prayer. I suggest to you that it's not only in Acts 16, but that in the Christian church in general, we will find that the common ingredient anywhere where successful evangelism is happening is prayer. Anywhere where people are truly coming to Christ, really repenting of sins, really having their hearts opened and turning to the Lord, like we see in this chapter, anywhere where that's really happening, the common denominator will be prayer. Somebody is praying. It might be a whole church full of people praying. It might be a little old lady praying for her community, praying for her street. It might be a children's Sunday school class. But someone is earnestly praying when people are coming to Christ. That's the first constant we see in these two very diverse conversions. The first constant I think we see when people come to Christ in general. The place of prayer. But then there's another constant in these two stories. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ. Both of these women were changed. Both of these women went from darkness to light Not at the preaching of Paul at the root level. Not because they were really attracted to the church, first of all. Not because they were attracted to the morality of the Bible. These women went from darkness to light, first of all, at the name of Jesus Christ. Now that's explicit and obvious when we think about the slave girl in verses 16 through 18. Just read those again. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now, what did Paul not engage in here with this woman who was obviously emotionally, spiritually, mentally disturbed he didn't go to psychotherapy he didn't go first of all to medical treatment although that's sometimes necessary and a part of what must go on and he had a doctor with him incidentally Luke Paul realized first of all there may be other things working here but first of all this is a spiritual issue that can only be solved 
by the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't give this girl some assignments to do to sort of help her work through her issues, though that can be helpful at times. He did not put her in a help group, though that is often beneficial as well. But Paul realized that before she could begin to be a disciple, which is what the assignments and the help group would help her to do, before she could be a disciple, she had to come to the place of hearing and bowing to the name of Jesus Christ. That's the starting place. And that's the starting place in our own world where people are confused and perplexed and heathen and so far gone that it seems like they could never be mended back to spiritual health. If they're ever to be set free, if they're ever to be mended back to spiritual health, they need more than just the accountability and encouragement that we can offer them. We'll come along with that in due time and it will be helpful but it will have no effect on them if they do not hear and know and bow to the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what we must be out in the world speaking. The name of Jesus Christ. Not just encouraging people to come to church. Not just giving them biblical ethics. Not just giving them therapeutic scriptures that they can read that will help them feel better for today. We must start by telling them about Jesus. And then all of those other helpful things, counseling, discipleship, medical, etc., will find their appropriate places. But we start with the name of Jesus Christ. That's explicit, I say, with this slave girl. It's not as obvious with Lydia that it was the name of Jesus Christ that changed things. All we're told in verse 14b is that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't tell us exactly what the things spoken by Paul were. But he doesn't have to tell us, does he? We already know the things spoken by Paul. Paul always preached the same things, didn't he? He may have started his sermons in some different ways. For instance, in Athens, where they worshipped all sorts of false idols, he started by proclaiming to them, you have an idol here to an unknown God. Let me tell you who the God is that you don't know. Or in the book of Romans, he starts out by preaching directly against sin, doesn't he? Those two sermons start in very different ways, but though they start in very different ways, they both climax in exactly the same way. In both of them, he comes to the place where he puts the people's noses between the pages of Scripture and says, let me proclaim to you the name of Jesus Christ. Paul did what Charles Spurgeon just a couple of centuries ago, counseled that preachers must always do in their sermons. He made a beeline to Christ. Wherever the sermon started, whoever he was preaching to, whatever their other needs and sub-needs were going to be, he always got them very quickly to the name of Jesus Christ. And he summarizes that very clearly in his letter to the Corinthians, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says to that church there, I determined to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul wrote that to Corinth, but that was his watchword wherever he went. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
That was always Paul's message. And so we know that that's what he proclaimed that day when Lydia. We know that it was the name of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ which she received that day when the Lord opened her heart. That was always Paul's message and it must always be ours, I say again. We're not just trying to get people into church. We're not just trying to change their behavior. We're not just trying to tell them about faith and how good it is to have faith. All of those things are important, but there is no church and there is no Christian behavior and there is no faith without Jesus Christ. And so we preach like Paul preached the name of Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful message to preach, isn't it? The name of Jesus, his name, Jesus, or in the Old Testament, Joshua or Yeshua means the Lord saves So when we preach the name of Jesus Christ, we're preaching the Lord saves. Not just the word J-E-S-U-S, but we're preaching what that word, what that name means and how he accomplished it. And we're not just preaching the word Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T or Messiah, but we're explaining what that word means, that he is God's anointed one, that he is the one that the whole universe, the whole of history has been waiting for. And so preaching those two names or the name and the title, Jesus Christ, opens up for us a whole story, a whole person, far beyond just two words. What those two words mean, Savior and Messiah, takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve listened to Satan and they sinned, And they were separated from God. And the whole universe was thrown into despair and groaning. So that the world needed a Savior. And then God promised in those early chapters that He would send the seed of the woman. Someone from the human race to be the anointed one. To be the Messiah, the Christ. Who would right all the things that we've wronged. And who would do for us what Adam and Eve's fig leaves could never do. Namely, cover our sins. That's what the word Christ means. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah for whom the world is waiting. For whom the whole Old Testament is waiting. And then He comes in the fullness of time as the man Jesus Tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And because he's without sin, able, as the King James says, to bear in his body our sins on the tree. And then rising on the third day and returning someday to judge the quick and the dead and to bring his people to be always with the Lord. All of that and more is what is tied up in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not just a mantra that we repeat that has magical qualities. The name of Jesus Christ is a person. The God-man, the Savior, the Messiah. And after we've gone to the place of prayer, that name, that person, is what we must proclaim to the Lydias and to the slave girls and to everyone in between. The name of Jesus Christ And I say it again, it's a wonderful task to proclaim that name, that person. But it's also a daunting task. Because look at what happened to Paul and Silas for preaching the name of Jesus Christ in verses 19 and following. When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas 
and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is a study in contrast, this section we're reading today. It's a study in constants as well, but it's also a study in consequences. The consequences of preaching the gospel. The slave owners said that Paul and Silas were doing that which was not lawful, verse 21. But their real motivation is seen in verse 19, isn't it? When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. And so often that's the case, isn't it? If we begin proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and living in such a way that it makes it unavoidable for those around us to see the difference that the name of Jesus Christ makes, that upsets a lot of apple carts, doesn't it? And people don't like the apples of their lives tumbling over into the street. It doesn't always happen exactly in the way we read here with beating and imprisonment and so on. But when Christ is preached and when Christ is lived, some people are set free and other people are stirred up to anger. To some people, we are the aroma of Christ to life. And to other people, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ unto death. Often the reason why they're so angry, often the reason why they're so stirred up is that they're trying to drown out the conviction of sin that's coming upon them. They're trying to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit. But since they can't get at the Holy Spirit and do anything to Him, they take it out on His messengers. There are consequences very often to preaching the gospel. Thankfully, we live in a culture where the consequences right now aren't anywhere near what they were in Acts 16. But there are consequences. Paul and Silas knew that this sort of thing was a possibility. This was not the first adverse response they had seen or heard of when the name of Jesus was preached. The apostles were often opposed and mistreated and slandered and so on. They knew that they could go to jail. They knew that they could be run out of town. They knew that they might be beaten or abused. And that may be... Why Paul wanted to silence this girl in verse 18. What she was saying was true, wasn't it? Verse 17, I should say, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That was true, wasn't it? But Satan may have been using this girl to proclaim that, to bring too much attention to these men and get them in potential trouble before they could even get started in the city. And so perhaps that's why Paul wanted her to be quiet. He wanted to continue doing his work quietly as he could, seeing people come to Christ before it all went down because he knew from his prior experience that eventually it probably would all go down. 
And it did. But in the end, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were willing to risk that. They were willing to risk being falsely accused. They were willing to risk being unpopular. They were willing to risk even being imprisoned and put in the stocks, figuring that it was worth it if they could but proclaim the name of Jesus and see Lydia's and slave girls set free. And I just wonder, for me and for you, if those kinds of consequences are worth it. Is it worth it to you to proclaim Jesus even if your family thinks you're a fanatic? Or if your neighbor thinks you're an oddball? Or if your co-workers talk about you behind your back at the lunch table? Or if your professor at school ridicules you? Is it worth it to proclaim Jesus even then? We're not facing anything like what Paul and Silas faced yet. But even if we were, isn't it all worth it that we may proclaim the name of Jesus? Aren't these kinds of sufferings but light and momentary in the face of the wonderful eternity that we are anticipating and that we are inviting others to come and participate in with us? Isn't it worth it? To proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what happens? It's easy to say that here. It's easy to say that in the pews this morning. But it's not so easy when you're standing in front of the person and your heart is palpitating. And you're trying to decide if you're going to speak or not. You're trying to decide if you're going to stand up for what's right or not. How often doing the right thing whether it's in terms of sharing the gospel or just standing up for what is right and morally good, how often doing the right thing seems to make life much more difficult than it was before. But Paul and Silas, in those moments of decision, would point to Lydia and point to the slave girl and say, it's worth it. The consequences are worth it. Let me close by reminding you that though we don't face anything like what Paul and Silas faced that day in Philippi, we do have brothers and sisters in the world who are facing these kinds of things even today. And just to give you just a flavor for that, I want to read to you from the March 2013 edition of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. We usually have a copy of it in the hallway out there. You can order a copy of it for free yourself through their website, or I can give you the address. But let me just read to you one man's story. His name is Narsbek Sidikov. For several weeks in the spring of 2012, Narsbek and some friends had been developing relationships with village leaders in Narsbek's home village in Kyrgyzstan. After sharing Christ with the school principal and village counselors, he was thrilled to receive an invitation in April 2012 to distribute gifts to school children in the village. But as soon as Narsbek and his team arrived at the school, they were confronted by a local Islamic leader, or mullah, who ordered them to leave. When Narsbek and the school principal refused to heed the mullah's order, the man left to gather his forces. The mullah soon returned with 20 of his students Chanting Allahu Akbar, Allah is great, they began to beat Narsbek and his team. As an attacker held Narsbek down, squeezing his throat tighter and tighter, Narsbek remembered thinking that it was his turn to suffer for his faith. 
He was freed from the chokehold only after his wife startled the man, causing him to let Narsbeck go. Narsbeck team scrambled for their vehicles and fled the school as attackers hurled rocks at them. Several team members, including Narsbeck, required hospital treatment. Narsbeck's right eye was badly damaged. Narsbeck later learned that the attackers were Muslim missionaries from another part of Kyrgyzstan. He felt he had to pursue action against the men, so he reported the attack to police. Police charged the Muslim attackers, and on October 11th, the case came before a judge. Before the trial in November, one of the attackers asked Narsbeck for forgiveness, and Narsbeck assured him that he was already forgiven. During the trial, Narsbeck had the opportunity to share his faith before the court. He also told the judge that he had forgiven everyone involved. Narsbeck continues to share Christ's love in Kyrgyzstan and open his home to his neighbors. He and his family recently held a traditional Kyrgyz housewarming party, inviting friends, neighbors, colleagues, and family. While the parties normally involve heavy drinking, Narsbeck did not provide alcohol. It was rather strange for many of the guests, but it gave me an opportunity to explain my reason for not having alcohol and to share my testimony, he said. This was a good time to strengthen relationships. We believe that God gave us this house to be a beacon of light in a dark world. Now, I just want you to notice briefly how this man's suffering and the legal proceedings that followed it gave him only more opportunities to speak for Jesus. We'll see that more next week. But for now, I mainly want you to leave this morning remembering that there are brothers and sisters in the world right now who are being persecuted for their faith, just like Paul and Silas. Persecution is it's not just from long ago in the pages of the Bible. It's also a living, breathing, bleeding, real-life reality for many people today. People who are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And we need to pray for them. And again, this Voice of the Martyrs magazine is a wonderful resource to help you do that. But as we leave Paul and Silas for now in their prison cell... We need to heed the command of Hebrews 13.3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Remember those who suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It is a name that is eminently worthy of our suffering for, and it is the only name that saves. <laughs>